Spencer Bell from the Tijuana Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this Monday edition of Fangraphs Audio, as he is on most Mondays, is our managing editor, Dave Cameron. In what follows, Cameron and I discuss in some depth an article he wrote for the site Monday regarding what a strong April record for a baseball team generally means for its end-of-season record. I asked Cameron what his findings might signify for a team like the Angels that has underperformed what we might consider its true talent, and a team like the Dodgers, who've jumped out to perhaps a surprising league-best 16-6 and start. Moving on, we look at some teams towards the top and the bottom of this week's iteration of the Fangraphs Power Rankings at SI.com and address, much to Cameron's joy, the slightly controversial number 7 ranking of the Kansas City Royals in last week's rankings. Finally, we look at the notable recent promotions of both Bryce Harper and Mike Trout to their respective Major League clubs, what we might expect their roles to be with their new teams, and how they might perform. It's Fangraphs Audio. It features Managing Editor Dave Cameron, and it begins right now. Related one that appeared uh, at ESPN Insider, which we should mention uh, because we don't enough, I think, uh, is also available to anyone um, who subscribed to Fangraphs Plus. Right. Yeah. We uh, basically take all the pieces we write for ESPN and just put them uh, behind our own uh, subscriber wall because if we can't give them away, I mean, not ESPN would have no reason to uh, have us write articles for their paywall if we just gave them away. So uh, we have to put them behind our own paywall for that reason. But uh, you can find them all on Fangraphs as well. Right, and and so the basic thrust of the thing is that um, simply because you you play well in April, that does not necessarily guarantee uh, a very strong season. What, what, now, what's this? Uh, first of all, I guess um, you you mentioned some basic numbers. Uh, how should we think about a strong April start then for a team? Is it is it meaningless? Uh, it's not meaningless. So I think that you should you know be informed by any amount of data. So I, I'm just not a fan of taking data and saying. It's too small of a sample. Throw it away. Uh, I think, you know, data is data, and as long as you understand how heavily you need to regress it and, you know, what you can include from it, then just you want as much data as possible. Um, you know, in the instance of, you know, April win-loss record or, or even as the piece talked about uh, run differential, which you might expect would be a better predictor of team success over the course of the season, um, it looks like, the, you know, you need to regress uh, pretty heavily where, you know, if you've got a team that wins uh, a lot of games in April, you know, and you thought they were a 500 team at the beginning of the year, maybe now you think they're, you know, a 530, 540 team. Um, and, you know, most teams aren't as extreme as winning 70% of their games the first month. So, you know, whatever your idea of a winning per- team's winning percentage was before the start of the season, it probably shouldn't have changed by more than, you know, 10 or 20 points at this point. Now, now how does this, uh, uh, I mean, we take the April start. Is April more or less important uh, than other months of the season? It seems to be about just as important. I mean, the only thing that you can really tell um, in terms of importance of April relative to the other months is there's a cascading effect where if a team has a really poor April, they're more likely to be out of the race in July, sell off all their good players, play the young kids, and be terrible down the stretch. Whereas if you're bad in August or September, when you've already kind of crossed that Rubicon, there's nothing you can do to react to your poor start that then would you know, compound your problem. So it doesn't appear that April is any more predictive than any other month, other than the fact that there's a, a time for the general manager to react to that slow April and sell off all his players sooner. And I guess, I mean, as a as a fan and as an analyst, whether you whether you try to or not, 
um, you're more likely, it seems, to remember a good April start or a bad April start. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I remember a couple of years ago, the uh, I think the Phillies was like 20 and four in April, um, and you know played really, really well out of the gate. Um, and it's one of those things where you know I couldn't tell you who played really well in June a couple of years ago, but I remember that start where they looked like just the best team in baseball for a little while, and then they struggled after that. I think the Diamondbacks did the same thing a couple of years ago, where they were just unbelievably good in August, in April, and then kind of slowed off. And so um, it's one of those things that, for whatever reason, I guess because you don't have any kind of uh, other wins and losses dragging that number down, so you just see in the standings 20 and 4, whereas in, during the middle of the regular season you might see you know a change in standings that's not going to look so drastic because there's already been games before that. Now, and now what's this, uh, what's this sort of uh, trick that you're talking about um, with uh, Tom Tango? Yeah, so last week on Inside the Book blog he just kind of uh, put up a little back-of-the-envelope toy for uh, if you have a team's record in a certain number of games, and you kind of want to know how much you should regress it. Uh, he went through some mathematical calculations a few years ago and basically came up with a back-end, um, you know, kind of a quick and dirty method of regressing, of just adding 35 wins and 35 losses to that team's record. So if a team's 1-0, you would say, you know, they're 36 and 35, true talent level, you know, assuming you know nothing about the team. So obviously, you know, we have different regression points for different teams based on their rosters. But if you were just in a vacuum, all you know is their record, you know, 1 and 0 is really 36 and 35. It's not that much better than 500. You know, 100 and 0 is 135 and 35. This seems really, really good. So, um, it's just kind of a, a point at which he said this is an, a regression you can apply to any team on any given day based on their number of games played and come out with something that says how much should their current standings influence what we think their actual record is going to be and kind of come up with an adjusted expected record going forward. And, of course, a, a team that finished 135 and 35 um, would be exceptional because they would have played eight more games than, than are generally scheduled. Yeah, that's a, a lot of doubleheaders. Or maybe, you know, or counting spring training results or something. We'll have to get to the bottom of that, Cameron. Um, yeah, and that's tomorrow's post. <laughs> let's, um, I, I mean... As to how this applies to certain teams, uh, you know, there are, there are clearly some teams that have gotten off, um, to unexpected, to surprising starts one way or the other. Uh, certainly a team that's performing worse than we might have expected, primarily because of some of their offseason signings and also the quality of the roster that was in place already is the Angels, uh, who enter play this Monday at 7 and 15. Um, now I don't know, uh, I mean, you mentioned the 35-35 trick. Now that's just for regressing for uh, for what we consider a league average team. What does this mean for the Angels? Do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think the Angels are a better team than they played certainly. So I don't think anyone should look at their April and say this team is terrible. Albert Pools is going to be the worst first baseman, and people know all this. This isn't breaking news. Uh, but I think people might be surprised to know that uh, the Angels have the third lowest exit of any pitching staff in, in baseball, or at least their starting rotation. Um, and you know, I think that you know their pitching hasn't been as good as people would have thought. Irvin Santana's given up a ton of home runs. Uh, their bullpens, you know, had some problems. But their pitching is not bad. This is uh, still a team that is uh, showing the underlying performance of a, of a team that should be one of the best pitching staffs in the league. And at some point, Albert Pools is going to start hitting. And when he does, uh, that's going to be a drastic upgrade. And so um, I'm not so concerned with the Angels 
uh, and what their first month means for what they're going to do going forward. But the reality is they've dug themselves a nine-game hole behind the Rangers, and I don't think they're nine games better than the Rangers over the course of five months. So it's going to be really hard for them to win the AOS just because of how badly they've played so far. And, you know, it is it is um, notable, too, is that, with you know, you can't – sometimes it's it's so difficult to get beyond the numbers or the, or the facts of the numbers, right? So even if you look at that 7-15 seven, uh, record – and you say to yourself, I say, um, I recognize that that's not necessarily a reflection of their true talent. It's still hard to get past the facts that that that, that record exists because you know because numbers can be very persuasive in this way. Yeah, I mean, I, and I think you know, even just watching the Angels, they've looked awful. <laughs> like they've done, every, they've been bad at everything. So you know, outside of Jared Weaver and you know Dan Heron's had a few nice starts, but other than those guys, it's really hard to find anyone on that team where you're like. You know, I've seen some optimism here, or, you know, I mean, Peter Borges isn't hitting. Uh, obviously, Bobby Abreu wasn't hitting, which is why he got released. Uh, their their defense hasn't been good. The bullpen has been a disaster. Um, you know, I mean, there just aren't signs where you're like, oh, man. You know, like what we talked about with the Royals last week. Uh, they lost a lot of games because they weren't hitting with runners in scoring position. There was one flaw that you could point in and say, when this thing corrects, they're going to start winning games. With the Angels, it's, you know, it's been a train wreck. Everything's going wrong. So, you know, when Poole starts hitting, that'll help. But that's not going to fix Irvin Santana's home run problem, and that's not going to fix the bullpen issues, and that's not going to fix the fact that Vernon Wells is a starting player on a team trying to win. Now, a team that's probably gotten off to a considerably better start than we might have assumed is the Los Angeles Dodgers. Uh, of course, we talked a couple weeks ago on this uh, podcast about how their early season schedule included um, – uh, games almost exclusively against the Padres and the Pirates, I think it was at the time. Um, you know, we have a couple more weeks of data now, and of course, it seems pretty clear that Matt Kemp is amazing, uh, although probably won't sustain a, you know, 450 or 500 Babbitt for the rest of the season. Now, what does, uh, for you, what does this, uh, sort of uh, research you've done, uh, regarding April, how does that, what does that let us know about the Dodgers? Yeah, I mean, I think it's certainly possible that we underestimated the Dodgers going into the year. I think a lot of people looked at their offseason with, you know, head scratching. Um, you know, they signed a lot of mediocre veteran older guys to two-year contracts with Chris Capuano and Aaron Harang and Mark Ellis and uh, just kind of put a lot of stopgap guys in place who weren't difference makers and just kind of filled out their roster with, you know, short-term guys. And it looked like this team wasn't ready to necessarily, you know, be a strong contender in the National League West, and they weren't really trying to rebuild. So they kind of put themselves in the middle, um, and we postulated maybe they were just trying to keep themselves competitive for uh, auction reasons in case the sale process dragged out and they wanted to have a competitive team on the field. Uh, it turned out to not be an issue since they got bought before the season started, essentially. Um, and now the, those, you know, mediocre veterans have been pretty good. I mean, Mark Ellis is uh, playing well at second base. Jerry Hairston is is playing well. Uh, Aaron Harang is striking out batters again. Um, and so, you know, they've gotten good performances out of uh, surprising spots, and Kemp and Kershaw have been, you know, Kemp and Kershaw, and so it's led to a, a pretty good record. I mean, there's no way they're going to keep this up. Uh, you know, as we mentioned, the early season started, I think they started 9-1 and one against some bad teams, and they're 7-5 and five since. We've already seen some, you know, slowdown of their wins once they've started playing better teams. Um, but, you know, I think you know, maybe the Dodgers are a slightly better than 500 team the rest of the way. And when you combine the fact that they're already 10 games over 500, that means they're probably going to end the year with, you know, mid-80s to maybe even low-90s win total. And in the NL West, that could easily make them the favorite. You know, uh, not necessarily with regard to the Dodgers, but you mentioned earlier the effect that 
um, a team starting off poorly might have um, in the, the sense that there's a cascade effect, or uh, alternatively that a that a that a GM can um, uh, maybe take action um, to repair uh, some problems that Tina's having. I'm, I think that perhaps also the opposite effect might exist, that there might be examples of teams uh, that, pay, that play above their true talent or that their records, uh, their records are better than their true talent might otherwise suggest. I'm thinking of uh, a Mariners team from a couple years ago, maybe the Indians from last year, where a team makes some moves thinking that it's better than it is and then uh, you know, regresses to, the, to their actual true talent um, after the fact, even though they've made those movements. Yeah, I think you can throw the Pirates for that mix last year as well. I mean, they made moves to acquire a guy like Derek Lee at the deadline and try and keep themselves in contention, and then it all just fell apart in the second half, and they ended up losing 90 games anyway. So, um, you know, there are certainly examples of teams that get off to hot starts and maybe trick themselves a little bit. So it's important to understand, you know, how you're winning games and whether, um, you know, in the Dodgers' case, their their team's uh, starting staff has a bad of about 252. Uh, they got to know that's not going to continue, so they shouldn't fool themselves into thinking that their rotation is all, you know, uh, Cy Young winners and aces. Um, they've got some, you know, they're going to they're going to struggle at times, especially when Matt Kemp stops hitting like Barry Bonds. Uh, you know, there's there's some flaws on this Dodgers team. I do question whether that understanding of knowing you're imperfect should stop you from trying to take advantage of it, though. I mean, I think we've seen imperfect teams before who have, uh, you know, kept this up for longer than we might have expected, gotten themselves into the playoffs, and then as we know, the playoffs, you know, really anyone can win once you get into October, and the value of uh, making a deep postseason run, both in terms of finances and just, you know, fan affinity, um, really can't be understated, and so I guess can't be overstated. Um, so I think, you know, even if you aren't that good of a team, and you know you're not that good of a team, if you're contending in the summer, I think you almost owe it to yourself and your your fans in the franchise to make a run. And, you know, if you have to give up a prospect to try and take advantage of uh, a fluke and capitalize on it, you know, uh, I still think that's worth doing. Now, I want to address um, your favorite topic, uh, which is the power rankings. Powered by Fangraphs, uh, which appear weekly, uh, I think weekly, uh, every Monday afternoon at SI.com, the, the MLB power rankings there. Uh, last week, uh, last week, the Royals came in seventh uh, in the MLB yeah. power rankings, despite a record of three and thirteen, and this caused yeah. a lot of hand wringing and hysteria on the uh, on the internet. Um, also, some consternation. Perhaps some consternation. Um, I guess. Do you would would you like to sort of provide a an asterisk next to that uh, ranking of the Royals, and then maybe suggest why? Um, I guess what that means for our overall understanding of power rankings. Yeah, well, I'll give you a sneak preview of this week's power rankings. Uh, they're not going to come in seventh. They're all the way down to ninth. So, uh, you know, feel free to not have as much hysteria. Uh, the Royals are no longer rated as the number seven team in baseball. But, I mean, I, w- I would hope that people understand that power rankings of current season performance have never been intended as any kind of true talent ranking, uh, you know, especially with these mainstream sites like ESPN and SI. That's not what they're trying to do. They're not trying to say uh, this is the best team in baseball right now. There, it's always been judged based on just current performance and kind of who's hottest at the at the moment. So if a team starts the season 7-0, and even if they're not very good, they're going to find themselves very high up on the power rankings. And in this case, you know, the Royals' win-loss record doesn't reflect uh, how they've performed in terms of hitting 
uh, in pitching and fielding. Um, you know, they should have won more games than they did, and uh, you know the rankings reflect that. It, the, the war basically thinks the Royals are a 500-ish team. Um, you know that has performed poorly in clutch situations, so their record is a lot worse than you would expect. Uh, because of the giant bunching of teams in the middle that are all around 500, uh, the Royals just hand, happen to end up uh, at the top of that pile of teams all in the middle. Uh, but at no point was Fangraphs saying, the Royals are the seventh best team in baseball, or we expect them to be contenders this year. Uh, it's, it's a power ranking. It's a, uh, it's a snapshot of what has happened at this point in the season based on this certain input. Clearly not perfect. Timor is not, uh, you know, uh, handed down from the rocks of, of heaven as the way to evaluate a team. Um, but it's an interesting insight into, you know, kind of a context-neutral, uh, you know, performance based on the peripherals that generally lead to wins. And so, you know, we would hope that people will find it interesting and learn something from it. And, you know, if they want to decide that this is Fangraph saying that this is exactly the order of teams in baseball uh, and how we think they're going to win games going forward, then I think they're missing the point. Well, yeah, right. And and I guess the other thing is to say that, you, you know, you mentioned that power rankings traditionally um, uh, are more of the, a judgment call by a single author or maybe a small group of, of contributors um, based on, and, and right, and they're, and they're largely based on win-loss records. So if a team gets off to 7-0, you'll probably find that team at the top of the power rankings. Um, meanwhile, not only is I, I guess what, what when it's informed by Fangraphs War, you're not only saying um, we're looking at the sort of underpinnings, but and so therefore you know you might find a team that has a 500 record uh, at the top of the power rankings. But because we're looking at at the underpinnings, uh, especially early in the season, um, you're likely to find a team you know that that is three and thirteen in the top ten uh, merely because you know uh, it. The season, not much of the season has gone by, and this team has done the things that they can control. They've done them pretty well. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, uh, anytime you're dealing with small sample sizes, people generally understand that you're going to get weird rankings. I mean, right now, the Baltimore Orioles are in first place in the American League East, but no one is freaking out over the fact that the standings are wrong. <laughs> and so it's just kind of uh, a little incongruous to me that people will, you know, uh, understand the nature of results in small samples, and then at the same time, once you begin to apply uh, a slightly different analytical way of looking at a team's performance, still with the understanding that a small sample, they then believe that it should reflect exactly true talent going forward at that point, which is just not true. I mean, you know, whether it's war, ERA, or WHIP, or OPS, or walk rate, and no matter what stat you have, if you have a small sample, uh, over a period of time, you're going to get weird results. And so, um, you know, the Royals being in the top ten, it looks weird. We understand it looks weird. It's not going to continue. I'm pretty sure the Royals are not going to end the year in the top ten. Um, but this is just the results of how they've uh, played so far, is they've hit better with uh, men on, with the bases empty than they have with men on base, and they've pitched worse with uh, the men on base than they have with the bases empty. So their underpinnings of their success uh, look better than their actual record, and that's you know, at least an interesting thing to know that you probably didn't know that before you looked at Team War. And they, I mean, I guess to be fair, uh, they actually have some interesting pieces and some interesting young pieces too, which uh, I guess theoretically could give you some optimism for their for their near and less near future. 
Yeah, I mean, to me, it's another one of the funny parts of this is I think most of the projection systems had the Royals pegged for 75 to 80 wins before the season started. Some people were more optimistic and may have thought they could get up to 85 if some of their young guys were going to break out and their young pitching stepped through. And so a month into the season, uh, you know, the, the team war says they're about a 500 team, which pretty much in line with where they were expected to play before the season started. But because they started the year 3-13 and 13 and had a 12-game losing streak, uh, you know, that analysis is insane. So I just think it's one of those things that, you know, maybe people are looking for something to get offended over, or um, I, to me it's just a big kerfuffle over nothing. Well, this is good. I'm glad we used, utilized the word kerfuffle on the, uh, on the podcast. Uh, if- yeah, I mean, you know, I figure with consternation and kerfuffle, I've got my uh, quota for the day of sounding snobby. Yeah. Um, now, uh, you, we mentioned that, uh, the Royals have some youth. Uh, speaking of youth, Dave Cameron, a couple of the brightest young players, uh, the most interesting young players in the major leagues were called up, uh, promoted to the major leagues over the weekend. Uh, of course, uh, probably um, most interestingly was the promotion of Bryce Harper uh, to uh, to the Washington Nationals with Ryan Zimmerman going to the DL, uh, also in a, in a move that was um, – that occurred simultaneous to Bobby Abreu being released. Uh, Mike Trout, who, who uh, to be fair, made um, uh, quite a few appearances. Uh, he played he played a number of games last year. Uh, he was also uh, promoted to the major leagues. I don't. Do you want to start with with Harper or Trout? Because I want to talk about both of them. Uh, let's start with Harper because I actually saw him play over the weekend. Oh, you did. Oh, very interesting. Um, yeah, I well, mean, not not in person. I was not in Los Angeles. I, I watched the game on TV like millions of other people. Well, let's yeah, let's do start with with Harper then. Um, the the Nationals have had problem in left field um, because uh, Michael Morse has been out for uh, most, if not all, of the season, and then we find out that uh, I guess Ryan Zimmerman is dealing with a shoulder problem. It's not necessarily uh, it doesn't necessarily follow that because you put Ryan Zimmerman on the DL though that Bryce Harper is is the player you recall. Why did why did that move happen? Well, I think the Nationals understood that with Zimmerman out, uh, even though that you know you might say, okay, you need a third baseman to replace him, is that was like, going to be a blow to their offense, and so you know they were going to have to either play Mark DeRosa more, who's kind of in that outfield third base mix, or Chad Tracy, uh, and those are not, kind of not the guys you want to stick uh, in there to inspire your offense. Um, so I think that this is more of a you know with Zimmerman down, let's call Harper up, see if he can ignite our offense, give him a chance, and I think it's also a little bit of a uh, a cushion. So, you know, if they were thinking about calling him up in May anyway, this gives them a chance to call him up. If he plays well, they can keep him and say, hey, look, you know, he's ready and he's here and fantastic. Uh, he's on the team. If he doesn't play all that well, they can send him back in two weeks and it doesn't look like an emotion. It's a, he was just a temporary call up anyway. Um, you know, he wasn't, this wasn't a planned promotion. Um, we're not sending him back because he struggled and we're sending him back because everyone's healthy again and we don't, we need that roster spot. So it gives them a chance to look at Harper in the major leagues without making him feel like if he gets sent back in a couple of weeks, he failed. Can you tell us how this will affect, uh, his service time, um, his arbitration eligibility, uh, when he'll become a free agent? It won't affect its free agency at all. So it was just past the 20-day window. Uh, coincidence, coincidence. Uh, that uh, He got called up right after the 20 days. Um, so he'll still be a free agent uh, after seven years. I mean, if you count this as a year, the, the Nationals will still control him for six more full seasons after this one. Uh, it will make him a Super 2 if he stays in the majors all year. Um, so he'll 
be among those players in a couple of years who has two-plus years of service time that will qualify for arbitration early, and that will escalate his paychecks even faster. Um, but the Nationals, I think, understand with Scott Boris as his agent, they were always going to have to just back the truck up in order to keep him in Washington long-term. So, you know, whether he's a super two or not, uh, you know, he was never going to find one of these team-friendly extensions that kept him in D.C. for 10 years. Um, so I think they're less concerned about the two, Super 2 status. They made sure that they got his uh, additional year of team control by holding him down in the minors through the end of the month or pretty close to the end of the month, and uh, I think they're pretty happy with that. Now, from what you saw of Harper, of course, um, you know, it's just a couple games over the weekend. Um, what do you think that he he could potentially provide to the Nationals or, or maybe he already has in, in a short time? Well, you know, I think the thing with guys like Harper is their, their skills are going to be obvious at times and their flaws are going to be obvious at times. So, you know, Harper hit a ball really hard the other night, bounced off the wall in center field. Uh, that's the kind of thing that he's capable of doing right now. If you throw a mistake, he can hit it a really long way. Um, he's also probably not capable of hitting major league left-handers, and he's going to struggle with good breaking balls out of strike zone because his play discipline is just not there. Um, so I think we're going to see, you know, Harper's going to have stretches where he goes 0 for 15 with 10 strikeouts, and he looks silly, and then he's going to run into a meat, you know, a meatball over the middle of the plate and hit a ball 450 feet. So um, I can remember back then when Andrew Jones came up back in the mid-90s um, in the playoffs, the Braves were using him, and, you know, he was hitting monster home runs and then looking terrible in his next at bat. And I think we're going to see some of that from Harper, where it's going to be some really good and some really bad, and overall he'll probably be a blow-arm splitter. Well, yeah, and he made a, I guess, a creative play in center field over the weekend. I believe it was the Sunday game. Uh, he was he was center field, and he he didn't necessarily track the ball particularly well, uh, but he did end up, I, I sort of out of sheer effort and I guess athleticism as well, making his way to the ball and then um, almost breaking himself against the outfield wall. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, I think what we're going to see from Harper defensively is. You know, he's got that cannon arm, which is not something that, you know, needs a lot of experience. I mean, you know, maybe you can learn to become slightly more accurate in a couple of years, but for the most part, throwing arm is, is going to be a weapon for him from day one. And we saw him basically throw a guy out to play on Saturday night if uh, Wilson Ramos had hung onto the ball. Um, that would have saved the Nationals a run and potentially could have won them the game. So, you know, with Harper, I think we're going to see some interesting routes and some, you know, uh, deficiencies in the, uh, you know, positioning and, and route re- running. Um, and the kinds of things that come with experience. I mean, Harper was a high school catcher, so he hasn't been an outfielder for that long. But the physical tools are there. The athleticism is there for him to run down balls in the gap. The arm is certainly there. Uh, so I think we're going to see him be a positive defensive uh, asset at times and then, you know, also make some boneheaded plays. And where is Anthony Rendon right now? Because it, it seems like with Zimmerman out, uh, Rendon would have made sense in theory. Yeah, he has a serious ankle injury. Uh, in the first week of the season, he uh, rolled over his ankle, and he's on the disabled list. So he was not an option because he is also uh, unavailable to play. And given his uh, lingering injury history, uh, it's a question of whether he's going to be uh, able to get enough playing time, you know, over the next few months to even come up and make an impact this year. So um, I would imagine that you probably won't see Rendon in Washington until next season, the earliest. Okay, uh, and then simul- or almost simultaneous, I guess, to this move, or later, later, um, uh, later in the evening, after uh, the, the announcement regarding Bryce Harper, it was announced that the Angels had parted ways with Bobby Abreu, uh, sort of an outfielder in quotation marks, probably you know more of a DH now at this point in his career, if he ever really was an outfielder, um, because it seemed, oh, he seemed like a player that, uh, despite his athleticism and, and probably decent speed. Never really understood uh, the outfield. Uh, and the Angels called up Mike Trout 
uh, I guess two two part question. First of all, is a, was Abreu the right choice uh, in terms of which player to cut? And, and secondly, what will now be Trout's role with the team? Yeah, I think with Abreu, I mean, they've clearly been trying to trade him. Uh, you know, they had that whole spat in spring training where he, you know, criticized the front office for not giving him everyday playing time. And uh, I, I'm guessing with Abreu, there was non-baseball reasons for having him be the one to get rid of. And uh, he was basically a replacement-level player at this point who had an outsized opinion of himself, and those are probably not guys you want on the roster. So you can make an argument for uh, Vernon Wells being the guy to get cut, um, you know, and Wells being a guy who certainly deserves to lose playing time. But Abreu was a guy who they were wanting to get rid of, and, you know, clearly there wasn't any trade interest in him. Uh, they'd been trying to move him for, you know, basically the entire offseason, um, unsuccessfully. Uh, couldn't even really figure out how to get him to the Indians, uh, who ended up signing Johnny Damon instead. So uh, Abreu was a guy who wasn't going to get, garner any kind of extra trade value. There was no chance that he was going to perform any better to expedite his uh, exit in any other way. So releasing Abreu just made too much sense. Uh, you could argue that maybe they should release well, too, but at least with him, with a couple of years left on the contract, it's not impossible that he has another year like he did his last year in Toronto where, you know, he starts hitting for power again and, um, you know, becomes a, a fairly useful player where then you could convince some other team to take on some portion of his contract and, and save a lot of money uh, or save some money, at least in the process. So I think there's some upside in keeping in Wells over Abreu. There's no real upside to keeping Abreu, and uh, I would say cutting him was the right move. And then, so what will then be Trout's role, uh, I guess, relative to Wells and Hunter at this point? Uh, I don't think they called him Trout on the bench. You never know. I mean, they, last year when they called him up, he didn't play every day. Uh, but, he, you know, he's a year older, and uh, I think they understand that. With Abreu out of the mix, there's one less guy that he has to kind of fight for playing time. So I would think Trout's going to play pretty regularly. Uh, Burgess and Hunter are going to probably get a day off here and there uh, with Trout up now. So they might not be everyday guys anymore. They'll be maybe close to everyday guys, and you kind of have an outfield rotation. And then, you know, uh, there might be days when Wells ends up serving him for the H, and all four of them are in the field. But uh, I would think Wells will lose the most playing time. Um, but, you know, Burgess and Honor might lose a little bit of playing time as well. And, you know, Trout doesn't necessarily have to play every day. So I think you'll see something of a rotation. And then uh, we also saw, actually just today, um, starting for the Arizona Diamondbacks, we saw uh, Patrick Corbin. Now, he is not himself is not necessarily of uh, the sort of prospect ilk uh, that either um, Harper or um, or Trout would be. Um Corbin was was recalled uh, with Josh Commenter being moved to the bullpen from the starting rotation. Now, uh, Corbin is starting today's game, uh, or did start today's game. The the question remains, though, is Corbin the solution in Commenter's vacated spot, or is it a possibility we see Tyler Skaggs um, or or perhaps Trevor Bauer? Yeah, I mean, I don't think that Corbin is a long-term solution. I think that he's kind of a stopgap. Um, you know, Skaggs, I think, is probably the guy who deserves the promotion. You know, a lot of people seem to be on the free Trevor Bauer Twitter movement. But, I mean, Trevor Bauer is running a, a very high walk rate in double A. He ran a really high walk rate in his pro debut last year. Um, I think, you know, it's it's fair to say that Trevor Bauer has some things to work on. And I'm okay with Trevor Bauer staying in the minor leagues for a little longer. Um, so Skaggs is probably the guy that I would think you will see uh, called up at some point in the next month or two, especially if Corbin doesn't doesn't pitch all that well, but I think they figured they'd rather give him a few more months in the minors, and um, Corbin's a decent enough stopgap to kind of get them through to that point. 
All right, that's the podcast for this week, uh, Dave. Hey, uh, Cameron, um, maybe you want to answer this. Maybe maybe you don't have any ideas about this, but uh, I was looking for maybe like a weekly for a, a, a set name for your podcast. I could just write Dave Cameron, uh, but I was wondering. I've I've had Dave Cameron time. I've had the weekly Dave Cameron. Dave Cameron in your face, maybe late night. Uh, you know, maybe like talking about the power rankings again. Dave Cameron on <laughs> power rankings all, all the time, every time. Yeah. No. Uh. Let's see. I do don't you, know a name. Do you, uh, have, do you have any preferences? Uh. No. You don't. Yeah. I mean, if something comes to me, I'll send you a note. But I mean, I would say you're probably more creative at these kind of things than I am. Yeah, I think that might, might be a problem. In this case, I, I want to, uh, I want people to know that this is the analysis portion of Fangraphs Audio because it should not be confused with the Dane Perry weekly episode. Right. I think that we're pretty different, and people probably understand that I don't start dropping f bombs right off the bat. So. Yeah. No. You wait. You wait till we're till we stop recording. Right. And then you get, I mean, you get, you say terrible things to me. Uh, yes, but they usually don't include expletives. They're just mean. Yeah, they're just mean. That's true. Uh, all right. Well, Dave Cameron, I'm going to let you go and, uh, and run, uh, fangraphs.com. Um, but in the meantime, thank you for making your weekly appearance here. Uh, I appreciate it and look forward to, uh, uh, hearing what we can talk about next week that does not involve the power rankings. It will involve the power rankings. So that is Dave Cameron. I'd like to thank him. I'm Carson Destouli, and this has been Fangraphs Audio. 